Um, so last week I was talking about what the Mahayana is. It's not a school, but a whole movement, many schools within the Mahayana. Um, a new way of seeing, uh, conceptualizing, conceiving of the Dharma. And uh, they, the fairly early texts, not the very earliest ones, but the Vimnakirtin Desha is a fairly early Mahayana text. It's not one of the earliest. But you could say it's the second wave of Mahayana texts, were um, opposed to what they call the Hinayana. So there's this opposition. And the Vimalakirti in the Desha is in part a text of propaganda. It's propagandizing the Mahayana over and above the Hinayana. So you, it's important to understand that. The, the earlier um, Mahayana texts, such as the Ugra Sutra, were not propagandist in that kind of way. But they, it, what seems to have happened, there seem to have been um, disagreements about what Buddhism was. And the Hinayana is the Mahayana's word for early Buddhism, what, what you find in the Pali Canon. So do you remember what Mahayana means? Do you remember from last week? Anybody remember? Great way or the great vehicle. So Hina means small, inferior, petty. So the term Hinayana is very much a term of abuse. Yeah, it's not a nice term to use. And uh, modern scholars of Buddhism tend not to use that term. They, they now talk about Nikaya Buddhism, which refers to the early Pali Canon, which is not a pejorative term, but Hinayana is pejorative. And it's only used by Mahayana Buddhists. Hinayana Buddhists never refer to themselves as petty, inferior <laughs> beings. So. Um, what the text is saying is that one of the things that Maha, uh, Vimalakirti did was to take people away from that early, small, petty way of understanding Buddhism to the great way. Now, so in what way was it small and petty according to the Mahayana? What seems <coughs> to have happened was in early Buddhism you've got the Buddha and his disciples and he was trying to gain, get them to gain enlightenment and many of them did. In a way, end of story. Uh, do you remember last week I was talking about a Buddhist scholar called Jan Natia who said um, the Buddhist job's description was to get people enlightened. And he did. He was really good at his job, if you look at it in those terms. But what the Mahayana was saying was that's not enough. Just to become enlightened is a small um, ideal. What we really need to do is do what the Buddha did, which is to practice for aeons and aeons and aeons, millennia until we're reborn in a world without the Buddha and then we, as it were, rediscover the Dharma in our last life and we become the Buddha and then we've discovered it for everyone else in that world system. That was what I was talking about last week. So that's the great way, massive, great big kind of ideal seen in terms of millions and millions of lifetimes. Whereas the small way, the Hinayana, is enlightenment in one lifetime. Yeah. So propaganda, we don't need to take that on board really. We don't need to see people who are simply trying to gain enlightenment through the teachings of the Pali Canon as small, petty, inferior. We don't need to take that on board. But it's, that's the way we have to understand the text. Yeah. Any other questions or responses? Anything that really stuck out for you? You know, wow, that's amazing.
bit where it said that he appreciates ordinary values and mm. that I found that really interesting. Mm. Sort of I guess maybe it's a contrast between him and the other the like the bodhisattvas and the um, arrogance that we find out about Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm just going to repeat that a little bit because it's being recorded. So um, somebody's just saying he was interested in the, I- the idea that the, the Vimnakirti was interested in the ordinary virtues of ordinary people, the excellence of those ordinary virtues. This again is, um, you, can, you can understand that um, in a very simple way, that um, uh, Vimalakirti was interested in everybody, even those people that didn't seem anything out of the ordinary. They were just ordinary people. He found something of great value in meeting with those people. You can understand it in that very simple way. But there's also a propagandist element there too, in that uh, the Arahants, the, the beings who become enlightened under the Buddha, were not ordinary. They were extraordinary. They, they were Lokutra. Um, Loka is world and Uttara is above. They were above the world. They're, what they'd uh, achieved was extraordinary. And um, so they were set against the laymen, as it were, the people who, not laymen in, a, in the sense that they weren't monks, but the people who were just ordinary people getting, you know, with jobs and families and so on. And one of the things that the Mahayana were interested to do was try to get rid of that dichotomy of the monks being the ones who were really going for it and the lay followers were the people who weren't really able to practice but they were able to support the monks to practice. And what, one of the things that Mahayana were trying to do was to say, hey, this is for everybody. This is for the, what one uh, modern translator calls the virtuosos of the spiritual life, the people who are really great at it, really good, you know, can get into a meditation at the drop of a hat. And then people like probably you or I, who really struggle to, you know, keep our mind on the breath for more than a few seconds. And um, Vimnakirti and the whole, here he's representing the whole of the Mahayana, is trying to bring everybody in. He's very inclusive. So this brings us to uh, another point, which is where he manifests himself as ill. This is very interesting. This becomes clear in the next chapter that he wasn't actually ill. He was just pretending to be ill as a skillful means. Say more about that later. Um, But why did he do that? So people would come and see him and all the people of the, the city and started off with kings and it went right down to tradesmen and so on. So everybody came to see him. So this is another theme that I want to, if we get time, I want to um, uh, explore over the weeks is his house. What kind of, never mind him, what kind of house can it be to have these thousands of people come to see him? That's quite a house, isn't it? And it's a room, maybe his bedroom, he's lying in bed, you know, or he's on his couch. It's a room in his house that can take thousands of beings at once and he can teach them all at the same time. So that's a really interesting image of inclusivity. And we'll see over the weeks that his house houses thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of beings by the end. This is part of the overriding theme of the whole thing. So kind of attracting, attracting, attracting thousands of people of all, all kinds. Yeah. Mm, another one there. 
the two words, skillful means. Is it worth uh, expanding that? Yes. Is it something that you and I could, uh, <coughs> could uh, do, or, or is it just something that a body sacrifice? Um, I d so the question is, uh, skillful means, is this something that you or I could do or is it something that just a bodhisattva does? There's an assumption there, isn't there, that neither of us are bodhisattvas, but we'll take that assumption. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah, so skillful means. So um, throughout that text there are a number of lists. Some of them were listed, some of them were the six of this, and you got the 37, didn't you? Do you remember, you get those, the 37 aids to enlightenment, which weren't, he didn't, say what they were, but early on you get the six paramitas. Yeah. Now the six paramitas uh, are specific to Mahayana Buddhism and they are... Um, here we are. Um, uh, ethics, generosity, Patience, um, energy, concentration or meditation, and wisdom. Now, the six paramitas are interesting because they're, uh, they're an amplification of the threefold way. So, we all know the threefold way ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So, uh, in early Buddhism, the Hinayana, uh, Nikaya Buddhism, you've got the threefold way, but there are two threefold ways. Yeah? The one that we all know about. Morality, meditation and wisdom. But that is for people who are trying to gain enlightenment. Then you've got another threefold way for those people who don't feel they can gain enlightenment. And this, this threefold way is aimed specifically, or much more so, at lay followers. Right? So for lay followers, most, most of whom can't really think in terms of gaining enlightenment, according to early Buddhism, you've got another threefold way, which is generosity to the monks, Right? Generosity to the monks so they could get on with it. Ethics and meditation. So that's the most you can expect of someone, uh, a lay follower. Yeah. So remember that Mahayana are trying to bring everyone in. So they put the two threefold ways together to make a fourfold way. Generosity, ethics, meditation and wisdom. And then you need another quality because it's a long, long path, isn't it? Millions and millions of lifetimes. And you're dealing with lots and lots of people on that path. So what do you need? Patience. Yep, you really need patience. If you're going to practice the Bodhisattva path, that is one quality you really, really need. And then finally, wisdom, which is enlightenment. But full and complete enlightenment of the Buddha. So that's the six paramitas. So that's six, and then later on you get a seventh added, which is skillful means, uh, upaya kalshalya. Kalshalya is connected with the word kusala. You know what's skillful? It's kusala, skillful. So hence skillful means. I've actually messed with this translation. This is main. This translation I'm using is more or less Robert Thurman. But he, um, some, he's, it's a great translation, but he can be a bit idiosyncratic and he doesn't translate Upaya Kaushalya, he kind of renders it in a new way, liberative technique, uh, which is a bit odd. So I've gone back to skillful means. So the skillful means of a bodhisattva is, comes out of the fact that people need different things. Um, it's not always the most appropriate thing to give them the straight Dharma 
as the Buddha taught it. Some people it just goes over the head or they reject it, they don't want it. And you actually get this when you look at the, uh, the Pali Canon, that you get sometimes when the Buddha was teaching somebody and they just didn't want it, they just rejected it. They said, no, I don't, don't go along with that, and they walked off. So the Mahayana didn't want that to happen. So they, they invented this idea of skillful means, which was you teach appropriately to every single person you meet. So the appropriateness of teachings. And it's not only teachings, it's also actions. And the, the appropriate action or teaching sometimes was a skillful means to the extent that it was a little, it can, it can be conceived of as being a little bit deceitful. So um, here you've got, the chapter is called Inconceivable Skillful Means. Inconceivable is a translation of achintya. And achintya is a word that's used a lot in this text. Uh, it's a key term. Chinta means think or thought. A is not. So it's usually translated, here he translated as inconceivable. You cannot conceive. Uh, you could translate it literally as unthinkable. This is unthinkable. This text is unthinkable. The Dharma is unthinkable. The universe is unthinkable. You cannot think the universe. Yeah, do you get the idea? You cannot conceive of it. Sometimes tra people translate it as unimaginable. And that is the, my favourite translation. It's unimaginable. It's so vast, so incredible. S incredible, there's another one. So, um, beyond what we can conceive with our small minds, that it's vaster than, it's unthinkable. So here we've got unthinkable or unimaginable skillful means. So it's very, very special kind of skillful means. And the whole conceit of the um, text from now on is all based on Vimalakirti pretending to be ill. And he spends the whole of the rest of the text in bed. It's amazing. The whole of this text is Vimalakirti in bed. It's not actually, no, I have to slightly alter that because the next two chapters, chapters three and four, Vimalakirti is not in bed because that's it's because it's a, a whole load of flashbacks. If you can imagine this as a film, you, you've then got a number of flashbacks earlier on. Uh, these beings have met Vimalakirti and they've been worsted by him and they don't want to go and see him. Um, so that's all flashbacks. But in real time, from now onwards, the Buddha is in, uh, Vimalakirti is in bed, the whole of the rest of the text. And all his teachings and all his meetings are done in bed. He's in bed, in his sickbed, and people are coming to see him. So it's an amazing kind of um, conceit for such an amazing sutra. This is what I want to talk about after the break. This, you know, you get the power souls, this magic power soul thing happening, the universe. And meanwhile, Vimalakirti is in bed. I really love that. It's really amazing kind of an idea, I think. Uh, I'll say more about that after the break. Ah, yes, so Vimalakirti is not actually ill. And also, uh, appearances. He appears to be a layman. He appears to have a son, a wife, and, and uh, servants. So there's all this appearance. Is that why they said, 
He's a wife and a son and yeah. servants, yet he maintains celibacy. Yeah, yeah, so, who or what or how did he get a wife? Uh, how did he have a wife and have a son, yet he maintains celibacy? So, there's this. There's what Vimalakirti actually is, and then how he appears to people in order to teach them to get these two things going on. Presumably, because if he was just if he just allowed himself to be seen as he was, it would be too much for people. Mm-hmm. So he has to appear to be something other than he is. So that's his great skillful means. Hmm. How are you doing? Had enough for the time being? One more, yeah? Yeah, well the first chapters, uh, I used to think, I used to think, why is that first chapter there? Get rid of it, it starts here, the text starts here. Uh, I don't think that anymore, I've now, I've, I've gained a new understanding. I, 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 I must say I was helped by a very strange but interesting book called Text as Father. It's, it's uh, written by a, a Buddhist academic in America, it's a thick hardback <coughs> book. I bought it on a whim really, but it, it goes into four Mahayana sutras. But the writer is a post-modernist. So he, he, he writes very strangely about Buddhism. Um, but he's got some very, very good insights into the text. And uh, uh, after the text, uh, after the tea break, I'm going to be talking about the first and second chapters. As you say, they happen at the same time. This starts at that time. That's a very important phrase, the first three words of, that, of the second chapter. At that time. Because when you read a text, you kind of think that the second chapter after, happens after the first, don't you? Yeah? But it doesn't. It's happening simultaneously. And that's really important. But we're moving on to the theme that I'm going to introduce later. So well, well noticed. Yeah. Okay, so we'll have a cup of tea and we'll come up in, back in 20, 25 minutes or so and uh, we'll look at some slides and I'll talk about the importance of those first two chapters, how they work together. So, uh, for the sake of people listening in on the website, we're just going to have a look at um, some slides. Uh, Slides of the first two chapters of the Vimalakirti Nidesha. Uh, I have cheated a little bit because I couldn't find any slides for the first chapter. But um, uh, I found slides of other scenes from other Mahayana Sutras which are very similar to it, with the Buddha surrounded by many, many beings. So there's the text written in Chinese. And uh, of course it was um, a practice to write out texts. So not only did you recite them, you would write them out very painstakingly and beautiful. And look at the beauty of that text. Look at those characters. Really very, very lovely, isn't it? So let's go to the next. There's the Buddha. It's a kind of Chinese Buddha, 
I think it is Chinese. And the reason for that is because although the Rimalakirti is said to have been written in Sanskrit in India, um, there are no Sanskrit versions left. There are only Tibetan and Chinese. And it's very popular in both those countries, but there's a lot of art, Chinese art, um, uh, of scenes from the Vimalakirti Nadesha. So there's a kind of Chinese theme to this whole slideshow. Now he's, never mind about him for now. Um, okay, this is the Diamond Sutra, I think, but again, you get the Buddha, you get the text on the left, this is written in gold, text on the left, and on the right, you get a picture of the Buddha teaching the Diamond Sutra. We're just trying to get a feel for what, you know, we can envisage when we uh, listen or read that first chapter. Now, look at that. That's the Pure Land. That's from uh, the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the Pure Land Sutra. So this is actually a pure land. So um, last week I was talking about the difference between a pure land and an impure land. Uh, an impure land is where we live in an impure Buddha field. And uh, the characteristics of an impure Buddha field is that there's suffering in it. Specifically, um, you get all six realms. You get uh, the human realm, of course, but you also get the animal realm, the hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the uh, anti-god realm and the, the god realm. And four of those realms are realms of suffering. And you don't get those realms in a pure land. You only get the God realm and the human realm. Wait a minute. Actually, I think the, the um, I'm not too sure about this, I can't quite remember, but I think a pure land you only get God, the God realm, but the gods of the path. Not too sure about that. But anyway, the main thing is in an impure land there is suffering. But this is a picture of a pure land. Let's see if I can get a slightly better. No, that's about the best we can do. Notice that the sky is gold. The sky is not blue, it's gold. And you've got many, many beings around the Buddha. You get beings in the sky as well, all sort of coming down to, related to the Buddha. His two chief disciples to his left and his right. Followers, beautiful buildings, trees. Hmm? You could magnify it if you want. I could magnify it. Oh, one of those. Yeah. I think, yeah, let's see if we can... That one there? Yeah. Oh. Oh, good. Excellent. Let's see if we can get slightly better. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, so let's move on. Getting bored with the Pure Land now. Okay, here is Vimalakirti. So you see, what I'm trying to show you is you've got that happening outside of town, out in Amrapali's park. Meanwhile, at that time, so this is the key term that relates these two chapters together. At that time, the time all that's happening is Vimalakirti. Hmm? In large. Okay. Whoa! Really going for it now. Now look at him, isn't he great? 
He's kind of sitting to his side. His little boots. Uh, can you see his boots anywhere? I know in some of the tech, some of these pictures, his little boots are just beside his couch or his bed there. So there's Vimanakirti. Is he a Dharma protector? No. It feels like a Dharma protector, doesn't it? Do you think he looks fierce? Yeah. Oh, okay. Did we miss one there? No. Okay, so here he is again. Here's a... Oh, doesn't fierce, though. No. He's teaching the Dharma. He's quite a young man now, isn't he? Yeah. So let's go over to here. There he is. Look at that one. Ha ha. Making a point. You see, I don't think he does look evil. Mischievous, intense. These hats. Haha. <laughs> 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 ha. is an old man now. He's got a fly whisk holding a fly whisk. Now, this, this is really from the seventh chapter. Uh, let's try and get it a bit bigger here. Uh, Chinese. Uh, there's Vimalakirti just there on his couch. There's his little boots. And there's Manjushri. And now this is from the fifth chapter when Manjushri comes to visit. He's the only one who dares to come and visit him of the Bodhisattvas. And that's the meeting. And quite a lot of the text is those two dialoguing. Now this is from the seventh chapter. I actually have a painting of this in my flat. There's his little boots. And this is Vimalakirti there. Very noble looking man, isn't he? Very noble. Uh, again, sort of sitting, crouching a little bit to his left. And there's the goddess who lives in his house. Now there's a whole chapter called the goddess, chapter seven. She's more fierce than Vimlakirti is. Yeah, it is a print of a paint, painting. Yeah, I wish it was a original. There it is again. And there he is again. Now this is very similar to the one in my flat, this one. Look at his, I mean, even if we got it big, it, it's not, it's quite fuzzy, isn't it? But can you see his face there? Can you see how it's not fierce? Uh, how he, there's his little boots again, just down the bottom. Um, and it, it's kind of in repose, isn't it? And really rather <coughs> spacious and open and beautiful. Each picture is kind of like a, I don't use the word, but like a halo around Yes, yeah, yeah, an aura, yes, yeah. Ah, look, there's the Buddha in the Pure Land again. A bit out of order here, but yeah, maybe it's good that they're out of order because all the time we're looking at Vimalakirti, the Buddha's out there, you know, in this kind of Pure Land type scenario. There he is again. And there's the text. So that's a slideshow, I'm afraid. That's it. Um, but I just wanted to show you a few pictures to, to give you an idea You've got two very different scenarios going on at the same time. You've got the Buddha outside in Amrapali's park with thousands of beings present. Um, big shoes, many of them enlightened, arahants. Um, 
32,000 bodhisattvas, um, thousands upon thousands of different gods, those beings in the sky in the Pure Land, there are lots of beings flying, floating above the Buddha, and uh, then ordinary people, lay men and lay women. But thousands, tens of thousands of beings around the Buddha, and it's all lit up, it's all kind of glorified, beautiful. Meanwhile, at that time, Vimalakirti is in his house in Vaishali. Now, a question arises here. If you know anything about bodhisattvas, you will know that Vimalakirti shouldn't be there. Yeah? Where should Vimalakirti be? He should be in the park listening to the Buddha, because that's the bodhisattva's duty. When there's a Buddha around, you go and listen to the Buddha. He's not there. He's not listening to the Buddha. So that, that should make us aware. Something is interesting here. This is different. And the text, as I said last week, is not a sutra. A sutra is the teaching of the Buddha. There is a teaching of the Buddha at the beginning, and then again at the end. And the Buddha has a little bit of interplay with Vimalakirti, but the text is about Vimalakirti and his teachings. And you might have noticed that in the description of Vimalakirti that I read earlier, he had the deportment of a Buddha. So Vimalakirti is, a, is, a, is a, an unusual character. He, 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 you cannot pin him down. It's very hard to pin down. What is he? Who is he? Where does he stand? Um, so yeah, really he should be out there with the Buddha, but instead of that he's pretending to be ill so that people will come to him. Now one of the as I said earlier with this the first chapter followed by the second chapter, I used to think that first chapter must have been added later because it's the, the thing actually starts with the second chapter when we meet Vimalakirti and then it all goes from there, the story starts there. But I've come to realise now, uh, with the help of that man who wrote the book Texas Father, whose name I can't remember, um, that actually the, the first and the second chapters are a duo, they, they, they very much go together. So we've heard the second chapter this evening and some of you heard the first chapter earlier. But the great thing about the first chapter is you've got the Buddha and all these beings and then Ratnakara comes from the city of Vaishali with 500 youths. They come to see the Buddha. They pay their respects. There's the miracle of the, um, of the parasols turning into one parasol, which is the whole universe. And then Ratnakara's praises to the Buddha, all very wonderful and beautifully written. And there to sort of really bring faith, faith arising within us and imagination and so on. And then after that, Dharmakara, Ratnakara asks the Buddha, uh, Vimla, the Buddha a very important question. He says, tell us about the purification of the Buddha field. So then the Buddha, and this goes on for pages. I didn't read it all last week. Pages and pages where the Buddha's talking about the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field. How does he do that? In other words, how, does, how do you bring about a Buddha land, a Buddha Kshetra? How does a Bodhisattva do that? And the main teaching in many, many, many words is you do that through developing living beings. That's how you do it. So a Buddha land is not a place. This is the new teaching that the Vimalakirti brings because you've got Buddha fields, Buddha kshetras, Buddha lands in other Mahayana sutras, but this one brings in a new idea that actually a Buddha land is not a place, it's people. 
it's Sangha. So this is really interesting that a Buddha land is actually Sangha. And a pure Buddha land is the ideal Sangha. So a pure Buddha land, when you read about a pure Buddha land, you're reading about beings who have reached enlightenment. And so when we read about those beings, this is what we're aspiring to. We're not just aspiring to enlightenment, we're aspiring to collective enlightenment, enlightenment as Sangha. So our Sangha, our little Manchester Sangha here, is a reflection of a pure land. So that's one thing, that pure land isn't a place, it's made up of people. And then he goes on, on and on, on about a pure land. And then you get the episode with Shariputra. Now there is a picture of Shariputra here. Um, Shariputra is really important in this. Uh, let's see if we can find him. This is quite early on, so there he is. Shariputra, a very important figure in this text, a figure of fun, foolish, a, a foolish figure. Um, very unfair on him because he's not. Uh, he's uh, a very important figure in the early Buddhism, in Pali Buddhism. He's one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, very, very intelligent man, enlightened, fully enlightened. Uh, but um, the Vimalakirti, Nadesha, makes him a figure of fun. So he's often thinking things that you or I might think, silly things. Uh, somebody's teaching and you're thinking of something really daft. But nobody knows, so it's okay. But in this case, the Buddha or Vimalakirti can read his mind and they always expose him. So he's constantly getting exposed throughout the whole text. Poor man, you know, he's just thinking, wouldn't mind a chocolate biscuit actually. And they pick up on it, chocolate biscuit, you want a chocolate biscuit? So many times it happens and he's exposed. Um, but he's a very important figure because he thinks things which brings out a new teaching. So he thinks something a bit daft, and that allows Vimalakirti, usually Vimalakirti, but in the first chapter it's the Buddha, to bring something out which is very important. So he plays a very important part in the text. A figure of fun, but absolutely essential to the text. So he has this thought about the Buddha land, which I talked about earlier. So we're going to go on from there now. At that time, second chapter. The Buddha's talking about the Buddha land. In a sense, he's, he's demonstrating the Buddha land. He demonstrates the pure land, the pure Buddha field, by putting his toe on, on the ground and whew, we're transformed into another universe. What's Vimalakirti doing, meanwhile? Lying in his bed at home, pretending to be ill. Why is he doing that? So people go and see him. And why does he want people to go to see him? So he can teach them the Dharma. And what is teaching the Dharma? It's building the Buddha land. Yeah. So you've got the ideal Buddha land in the first chapter, and then you've got it as it's happening in the real world with Vimalakirti. Yeah. This ideal gold sky, beings, gods and everything. Yeah, this is the imaginative kind of evocation of a pure land. And then you've got this guy lying on, in bed, snivelling. People coming to see him. Uh, he's speaking to them, he's probably blowing his nose and it's all a bit of a mess. And loads of people come to see him and he teaches them the Dharma. So you've got Vimalakirti who is 
in the text, he represents the real world. Yeah? He's right in the middle of the city. He's not out there in the countryside. He hasn't left home. He's, living, he's a businessman. He's got a wife and children, or he appears to have a wife and children. He's got servants. Uh, he goes to visit schools. He visits bars. He visits brothels. He's the Dharma in the world. It's as if in this, in the Vimanakit, in the Desha, the Buddha is unworldly. He's outside of our life. He's outside of the city. He's outside of our ordinary everyday life. We have to go to see him especially. Vimalakirt is living here in the city. Yep. So that's one important thing, I think, that the whole, and as I said earlier, the text, what's interesting is about it is Vimalakirti, many, many people come to see him. Many beings come to see him, bodhisattvas, gods, and so on. Even from other world systems, they come to see him. So by the 11th chapter, his house must be about the size of the universe. Yeah, because it's got nearly everybody in it. And then what does he do? He transforms, he transports his house over to Amrapali's park. So he's got nearly everybody's in the whole universe is in Vimanakirti's house. And he transforms the whole lot over to the Buddha. And he says, here you are. So he's created a Buddha field and he gives it to the Buddha. He, here you are. This is what I've done. So the Vimanakirti in Adesha is building the Buddha land actually as it happens in the world. So that's one really important aspect. The two locations, the two people. Outside the city, inside the city, the Buddha, layman. The layman bodhisattva. So then another question uh, arises. Um, your question, so we'll come back to your question now, which is, is he supposed to be a real person? I think the answer has to be no. Um, no one could do what he did. Uh, he couldn't be in all those places at the same time. He couldn't do all that. Visit the brothels and the bars and the casinos and the schools and stand on street corners and remain celibate in the midst of this busy life with a wife. And it would be unfair for a start, wouldn't it? Unless she wanted to be celibate as well. So it's all, it doesn't really add up. It can't really add up to one person. No one person can do everything like that. Can you think of another way what other way might Vimalakirti, what might Vimalakirti symbolise then, if, he, if he's not really a, one human being? Is he an aspect of the Buddha? An aspect? Or is it Buddha? Well, I think he's a Buddha person. So what aspects of the Buddha could he be? Well, he's all them parts that wants to reach out to people without people having to go to this extraordinary part so that he makes it very accessible for the mundane people to... He draws them in. in yes. Way, in yes. Way. Accessible. That's a good word. He's accessible. He's access, isn't he? He represents access to the Dharma. Ordinary people. Drunkards in bars. People going to brothels. People gaming in the casinos and so on. He's access to the Dharma in every situation. So in a sense, he represents the fact that the Dharma's available no matter where you are. Yeah. Probably 500 years or so, maybe 600 years.
Need to or rejuvenate them for the Good. Of that time. Good. Okay. So the idea here is you've got an order member called Maitra Bandhu who's written a book called Life with Full Attention, which is relevant to many more people than just Buddhists, isn't it? So there's a kind of skillful means going on there. Let's follow that through. Maitra Bandhu is a member of an order, he's a member of a Buddhist spiritual community, right? Getting a bit close? Could Vimalakirti perhaps represent not a person but a spiritual community? Yeah. Communities, even. Yeah, yeah. Could Vimalakirti himself represent the Sangha rather than one person? So if you get a Sangha, let's take our Sangha, Manchester Buddhist Sangha, Manchester Buddhist Centre Sangha. You've got people working in schools. Clear vision. School visits, many, I do some school visits as well, developing children. So there's an aspect of Vimalakirti here at the centre, isn't there? Working with children, yeah? Does anybody go to bars and brothels and casinos? <laughs> we've, got, we've got a Mitra who works in a casino at the moment, yeah? I hmm? You go to bars, yeah? So, I mean, I don't know what you do, but you probably work in different, you're a musician? You work in bars? So you do, yeah. So you do. Olivia works in bars. Prasadu is a clinical psychologist. Um, we've, got, we've got a few medical people here, haven't we? People work in hospitals. Uh, is it, have we got any school teachers here today? Hmm? Yes. Yes? School teacher? Yeah? I teach algebra. You teach algebra? Yeah. So can you see how you could understand Vimalakirti not as a person, but as a conglomerate, as a collective? as a Sangha, each one of us going out and doing our little Vimalakirti bit out there. And what that means is that we can now understand our work as not just being our work, but as a skillful means, as a way of going out and spreading the Dharma. You might not spread the Dharma in that, you know, you, you see a patient and, you know, you might not say, oh, do you know about Buddhism? <laughs> it's a Four Noble Truths. <laughs> Well, they're lying there, you know, to doing whatever you do, you know, you start talking, you know, boring them to death with Buddhism. You might not do that, but the way you are with them, they may notice that. And they may think, that's a very unusual person. You know, that, I, the last person I saw who did that to me wasn't as nice as this person. This is a much nicer person. They might start talking to you. I mean, Prasadu works uh, as a clinical psychologist under the name Prasadu. So I'm sure people ask about that, you know, that's a funny name for someone looking like you. <laughs> what, where did that come from? And it, it allows Prasadu to say, I'm an ordained Buddhist, and that will bring about conversations. And some people go, oh. and other people will go, that's really interesting, tell me more. So we could understand the Manchester Buddhist Centre as being Vimalakirti. Here we are in the middle of the city. We're not out in the country. We don't run a retreat centre out in the country. We are in the middle of the city. We designed to be in the middle of the city. The whole point of the Manchester Buddhist Centre is that it's in Manchester. And it's amazing, isn't it? When you think of the centre, especially on Saturdays and Sundays, when I come here on Saturdays and Sundays, I have to sort of fight my way through shoppers. Loads, thousands of them, thousands, tens of thousands of shoppers. And it really is a crowded city on a Saturday and a Sunday. And you come in here and then you, you actually get here and you come in here, it's right in the centre. You even get some shoplifters, don't you, who they've been rumbled down in the, um, 
the Arndale Centre, do they come here and do a bit of shoplifting here because it's too hot for them in the Arndale Centre? So we're right in the centre of the city. So that's another way I think we can understand Vimana Kirti. Uh, what else was I going to say about him? Ah, skillful means. So one of his great uh, themes that runs through this text is skillful means, which is teaching appropriately. So this teaching that you heard earlier is the one of the few teachings that you'll understand in the whole of the text. <clears throat> so what's, what, what happens is um, Vimalakirti usually challenges very experienced Buddhists, so people who know a lot. So um, you've got, uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, you've got this idea of the relative truth and the ultimate truth or the absolute truth. You've got these two levels of truth, the two truths it's called. And the relative truth is the truth of ordinary everyday life. And it includes the Dharma, you know, the threefold way, the four noble truths, the five spiritual faculties. That's all relative truth. It's dualistic. Relative truth is essentially dualistic. There's enlightenment and there's unenlightenment. There's ethical behavior, there's unethical behavior. There's sukha and dukkha pleasure and suffering. It's all very, very dualistic and that's fine. We're trying to get from unenlightenment to enlightenment. We're trying to change from being unethical beings to ethical. We're moving from dukkha to sukha. That's all very, that's the way the Buddha taught, very, very dualistically. Do you want this or do you want that? Take your choice, because if you want this, you're going to have to work for it. That's the Buddha's teachings, basically. And here in this first chapter, Vimalakirti teaches just like that. It's the Buddha's teaching all over again. It's all about the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha of the human body, how it's going to let you down. It's going to let you down. It's impermanent. It's, it's subject to illnesses, the 404 illnesses. It's probably more than that, aren't there? But, you know, all the illnesses that we're subject to. It's subject to old age. It's like a, it's a, it's like a well that is overwhelmed, constantly overwhelmed by old age. So he, a few paragraphs of that, aren't there? He really lays it on thick. He's trying to get you to see that relying on the body and the senses, the five senses for your pleasure and happiness is not going to work. It's not going to work. What is going to work? So then he comes to, um, you could say uh, a Mahayana teaching, but you do get it also a little bit in the Pali Canon, but it's a very Mahayana teaching. You now um, imagine the Buddha, the body of the Tathagata. Tathagata is a term that's used a lot in Mahayana Buddhism. It's another word for the Buddha. It has a special meaning. Tatha, T-A-T-H-A, is suchness or thusness. So in Mahayana texts, you might get someone asking, what's reality? And they'll say, it is thus, or it is such. Reality is this, thus, or it's thusness. In other words, the way things are is just the way they are. You can see it. Just open your eyes. It's thus. Where's reality? It's here. It's thus. So, 
tata and then gata is to go. So tathagata means the one who is going towards thusness. But it has a double meaning as well because a before a term negates it. So it's tathagata, so it's going, but it's also coming. So agata is coming. So a tathagata is someone who's gone and he's coming back now. He's coming back for us. So the tathagata is another term for Buddha. So then there's this whole section on what, the, how we should meditate on the Tathagata, on the Buddha, on the qualities of the Tathagata. I don't know how you found that, but I, I always am uplifted and always feel better and somehow made spacious by such things. Uh, the body of the Tathagata is body of the Dharma, born of understanding, born of the stores of merit and wisdom. Morality, meditation, wisdom, the liberations, and the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is born of love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Do you recognize that list? The four Brahmaharas, the four meditations. It is born of generosity, discipline, and self-mastery. The path of the ten skillful actions. These are the ten uh, ethical uh, precepts that order members take. It's born of patience and gentleness, etc., etc. So at first he asks the people of Vaishali to reflect on if you go for refuge to your body, it's not going to work. It's just going to lead you to suffering. So what should you go for refuge to instead? Enlightenment, as represented, symbolized by the body of the Buddha. So instead of your own body, the body of the Buddha. Um, so as I say, that is a very, very simple thing to understand and it goes right back to the Pali Canon. It's Pali Canon Buddhism, really. Um, dualistic. Yep. Your body, the Buddha's body. Don't go for that one, go for that one. Now, as from next week, we'll come across a very different kind of teaching uh, where, we, where the Buddha, Vimalakid um, is teaching from the level of the um, ultimate or absolute truth which is non-dualistic. And what he does is he'll approach someone, uh, either a, a bhikshu, an arahant or a bodhisattva who's either meditating or teaching or doing something or other, and he'll point out the limitations of what they're doing, how they're seeing it too dualistically. So what he's doing is he's saying, no, that's not enough. You've got to do better than that. So another thing, another th aspect of the Dharma that Vimalakirti represents is sitting on your laurels, you know? don't. Yeah. You've got so far and you're getting a bit comfy now, oh, I think I'm getting the hang of this, quite happy with this, I'm practicing, got half hour meditation every day, happy with this now, this is, I've reached my level. You know, you get Mara, who's the mischievous one, who, when you think you're doing, when you're actually making progress, Mara comes along and trips you up. Yeah. Vimalakirti trips you up when you think you've made it. Yeah, just when you're settling down and thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I think I've got it now, I'm happy with this. Vimalakirti comes along and says, no. This is no good. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. So he's always not trying to get people out of their comfort zone. He 
pulls them out of it. And it's very uncomfortable. Have you ever had that where you're in your comfort zone and some situation pulls you right out of it? It's, oh, you're suddenly, who am I? Where am I? This is what Vimalakirti does again and again and again. He questions, questions, questions and shows people the limitations of their current level of practice and understanding and says, not enough. Over and over and over again. So um, in a way, uh, this is, I think this is partly why he's so popular in China and Japan. He's very Zen-like. He's like a Zen master who won't let their students get away with anything. Beginner's mind, in a way, yeah, yeah. So, um, so then the question arises: We haven't got anyone like Vimalakirti around, haven't we? No one who's gonna, you know, pull us out of our complacency and show us our limitations. But we have actually, and it's the Sangha. But the Sangha will only do that for you if you put yourself in the Sangha. If you kind of hold yourself back and are not honest with people, don't tell people what's really going on for you, they won't really know. So you know when we meet as a Sangha we only see the external, externals, don't we? You all look okay to me? You look fine, yes it's fine. But if we were to really get to know each other we would come across certain little blind spots, little comfort zones which we've been in for a long time now, we want to stay there, and which, which all those things are kind of preventing us from making progress. So one of Sangharaksha's great teachings is Sangha as practice. Sangha as practice, not just as nice to have a cup of tea with a few people in the middle of a class and then go home, but Sangha as practice. And what Sangha as practice uh, really consists of is really being open with one another, opening up to each other and being willing to say things. And this is what ideally happens in what are called chapter meetings. Chapter meetings are when a number of order members get together, ideally weekly, they'd get together and they would talk about their spiritual lives and we would, we will give each other feedback about that. Uh, have you thought of that? And that seems a bit, you've been doing that a long time now, haven't you? Is it about time maybe you moved on a bit? So there's actual feedback to each other where we can give each other feedback. But there's also certain times when nobody has to give anybody any feedback. The situation itself exposes you. You ever been in a situation where you suddenly feel exposed? You can only be exposed when you've put yourself in the situation. If you keep yourself back, if you hold back from people, you'll never be exposed. But if you really give yourself to a situation, this is why in our movement we, we really stress the importance of working together in teams as practice. Because what happens when you work in teams is your limitations come, they're exposed. I mean, I work for Breathworks, which is one of the companies that we run around here. And um, it happens fairly frequently that um, my limitations, my way of seeing things, my small, petty-minded way of seeing things, my self-protective way of behaving and so on, is exposed in this situation. But it's exposed with love, yeah? So that when it's exposed, you know, some situations you might think, I don't want to be exposed in that situation. You might be right. Don't expose yourself in certain situations because they'll clobber you. But within the Sangha, hopefully at its best, you're exposed, you're humiliated. That can happen. I mean, it's happened to me many, many times. Great humiliation. I'm just exposed for what I am, 
not the person I want people to see me as, but actually what I really am, becomes exposed. But it's exposed in a way which is okay, because people don't come down on me like a ton of bricks. Sometimes they do when I need it, but they don't, um, they don't try to hurt me, they don't try to take advantage of me in doing that. It's all okay. And actually, they knew that about me all along. They've known for years that I've been like that. And I've been hiding it, thinking I've been hiding it well, and of course I haven't. And I, it's only exposed to myself, actually. And it's like everyone else is going, oh, at last, that's happened, that's good. And so now you can see it, that's good. You've seen what we've seen for many years. <laughs> Isn't that what happens? You know, you think you're hiding yourself effectively, and actually it's obvious to everyone else what you really like. Because we, we express ourselves all the time unconsciously. Um, so Vimalakirti, let's do a little uh, summary then. So Vimalakirti is perhaps not meant to be taken literally as a one human being. Perhaps another way we can look at him, a very useful way of looking at him, is to see him as a whole community, a Sangha. And uh, how, many, how many ways have we looked at him this evening? I'm losing count now. Um, oh yes, um, there's another, before we do a summary, there's one more thing I'd like to say, which is building the Buddha land. So we talked about that too, didn't we? That Vimalakirti is building the Buddha land. In a way, you could say Vimalakirti is a Buddha land. What is a Buddha land? It's a society that's completely permeated by the Dharma. So um, a, a society where the banks are pure, uh, permeated by the Dharma, where the government is permeated by the Dharma. Yeah, where. Um, uh, shops are permeated by the Dharma, where the bars are permeated by the Dharma, the casinos, the brothels, everything is permeated by the Dharma. So what we have to do as Sangha is practice, but also we're out there in the world. We can't help but be out there in the world. And while we're out there in the world, we are perfuming the world, to use another Buddhist text, uh, perfuming the world with the Dharma. So Vimalakirti represents Sangha, he represents the pure land, he represents the building of the pure land, the purifying of the pure land, and something else which I've forgotten. Um, what's that other thing that I talked about this evening and it's gone from me at the moment? Oh yeah, the last thing. He also represents um, what you need to do next in your spiritual development. He represents the cutting edge of your spiritual development, which is probably the thing you're turning away from at the moment, because it's too challenging. So he challenges you to really do what you need to do to make your next step on the spiritual path to enlightenment. That will do, won't it?